If you have a Bible, you can grab it and make your way to what Lee just read, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. It's on page 996 in the Bibles that are around you. If you don't have one with you, grab one of those and go to page 996. And if you don't own a Bible uh, or have one you can read, take it home with you. It's our gift to you. Um, this Thursday, I'm going to do something that I've been waiting to do for years and years and years, something I've been talking about for years and years and years. Uh, and that is, I'm going to take, um, for years I've been talking with my girls about when they turn 14 individually, that I'm going to take them on their first backpacking trip. And so on Thursday morning, Haley and I are going to get up super early and we're going to head to um, Western North Carolina and pick up where I left off on the Appalachian Trail. We're going to do about 30 miles over three days, spend two nights in the woods um, and Looking forward to it, and, and it's a challenge. Now, we go because it's fun. We go because we want to have an adventure. We go because we'll get to spend time together. We'll get to talk about a lot of things. We'll get to see some amazing sites. If you'll go home and Google something called Max Patch, we're going to go up on Max Patch this year as part of that. Um, make some incredible memories. But it's difficult at the same time. And so I, I have not sugarcoated these difficulties with Haley at all. I've told her straight up, hey, you're probably going to get blisters. Some of them may be really, really bad. Uh, the bathroom situation, well, there are no bathrooms, so that's the situation in, in the woods. Um, you know, there's a drought going on right now, so water sources may be few and far between. We may have to walk a little ways without water. I have had a mouse chew its way through my tent and walk across my face before I woke up and crushed it with a boot. Uh, these are real things that, that have happened. So I haven't sugarcoated these things. I've told her the truth. And when I've told her these and people have heard about that, they're like, are you trying to talk her out of it? And I'm like, no, I'm not. I just want her to know the truth. I don't want to sugarcoat it and have some, you know, pie in the sky, everything's great. And then she gets out there and she's like, whoa, this isn't what I signed up for. That's really a whole lot of what this text is before us this morning in 2 Timothy. Paul very much wants us to understand that life, this world, it, it's going to be filled with difficulties. And he doesn't want to sugarcoat it. He doesn't want us to, you know, pie in the sky, everything's hunky-dory. And then we get in the world and we're like, whoa, what's going on here? I, I didn't expect this. He is straight up telling us it's going to be hard. And it's going to be hard because people are sinners. People sin, and they are going to continue sinners. There's going to be false teachers, and there's going to be all of this. And then, but, but at the same time, it's, it's not going to go on like that forever. There will be a day when Jesus comes again and brings in the new heavens and the new earth. And so very much kind of a theme or, you know, yeah, we'll just go with theme of this section. is the idea of anticipate victory, but prepare for battle. Right? Anticipate victory, but prepare for battle. Like The victory is assured, but until that day, there's battles that we're going to have to face. And so that's kind of the theme, but the text also is going to make us ask a lot of questions of ourselves. Questions that are introspective, because it details out pretty much just like what is the exact opposite of a good disciple. And so it calls us to ask questions like, what kind of person am I? Am I a good disciple? Or am I the opposite of that? Am I godless or godly? And, and what am I becoming? 
What am I moving towards? Who, who are people I idolize and I, and I want to emulate? Are they godly or are they godless? Who am I following? What do I cheer for? Who do I applaud? And so let's just get into it. We're going to frame the whole thing around three points, all beginning with the word understand. All right? And the first one is this. Understand difficult times are a given. All right? Understand difficult times are a given. And so look at verse 1. This is just straight off of Paul's pen. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, three key words or phrases I want to highlight here. You can underline these in your Bible. One of them is last days, underline that. Another one is difficulty, underline that. And another one is understand, you can underline that, okay? So last days, last days, this is not some like future thing that Paul or Timothy don't expect to, to live through. No, no, no. They're living in it. It is the last days. That's why he gives a, 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 at the end of verse 5, he says, avoid such people. Like right now, he's in the midst of the last days. So last days is the entire time between the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem and when he gloriously returns and sets up the new heavens and the new earth. That's the last days, however long that period of time may be. So we are living in the last days, just as the church has been for the last 2,000 years. These are the last days. That's what that term means. And Paul says that those days will be difficult. Literally, the word means savage. Savage. Greek, there's two different kinds of Greek. There's classical Greek and there's what's called Koine Greek or common Greek or vulgar Greek. The New Testament is written in Koine Greek. All right? Classical Greek uses this word here for difficulty to describe dangerous wild animals as well as the raging of the sea. All right, that's the way the word's used. In the New Testament, the only place this exact word is used anywhere else in the New Testament is when it describes the garrison demoniac in Luke chapter 8. The guy who's, they try to chain him, he breaks the chains, he's running around naked in a cemetery, attacking people. Savage. And Paul's saying that that's what the last days are and will be. That's what they'll look like. Days of difficulty. And he's saying, I'm living through them. Timothy, you're living through them. We're living through them, right? And will. But I think it's really interesting that Paul begins this whole section with this emphatic call to understand this to Timothy. Because in a lot of ways, could Timothy not understand this? I mean, Paul's in prison, right? He can see he's in prison. He can see he's locked up. He knows that all of Paul's friends have deserted him in Asia. And he gets all of these reminders and, and commands from Paul to don't be ashamed of the gospel. Even as people press in against you. And even you're going to have to suffer as a good soldier. You're going to have to endure as an athlete and as a farmer. All these metaphors, you've got to do this. And so it seemed, I mean, you, on our own we could go, as we look back in 2 Timothy and even 1 Timothy, it seems like Paul has expressed the difficulty of the times already to Timothy. And so why does he emphatically command Timothy to understand what he seemingly already knows? Well, here's why. Because he wants 
Timothy to understand that this isn't some future thing or some passing thing. That this is the way life is ongoingly. That this is a permanent characteristic of the age. It will be filled with times of difficulty. And so we need to understand that as well. That as we stand for the truth of the gospel, we will, not we might, we will face perils and troubles because we stand for the gospel. We are outsiders. This is not our home. We will be awed because of that. And so we are living in the last days. And again, we have been ever since Christ came. It's nothing new. And the evils that characterize the last days, they, they, they bust forth again and again. If you look over church history over the last 2,000 years, it's not always like the same level. There's times where it's heightened. There's times where it's lessened. And around the world, it's not the same all at the same time, right? No one's coming in and arresting us today and taking us off to jail and maybe killing us because we're worshiping Jesus. But our brothers and sisters in Syria face that. And so difficult days, like we want to understand, they are a given. And as we come to the end of the end, and when Christ does return, just as I'm realistic with Haley that the hike's going to be hard, we also want to be realistic that as we come to the return of Christ, the end of the end, we should expect an intensification of that. Which means we need to be careful of a couple of things. The first thing we need to be careful of is to not assume that the de degeneration of culture at the end of the age is owing to the failure of the church to be holy. Now, should the church be holy? Yes. Does the church need to improve in its holiness? Oh my goodness, yes. By church, I mean capital C church, and I mean lowercase c church, us. We need to increase in our holiness and living for God, absolutely. But there is no promise in the Bible that the holiness of the church will guarantee the transformation of the culture. That does not exist in the Bible. It's not there. But another thing we need to be careful of is to not assume that our day is the last of the last days. We don't know that. Every generation, my generation, Jesus is coming back right now. We've been doing that for 2,000 years. We need to be careful not to assume that the last of the last days is our generation. It may be God's will to ignite another great revival in the churches of the world or a great awakening around the world before he comes. And even right now, there is a huge awakening happening in Africa and South America and Asia. Huge. We just don't have global lenses that we look through a whole lot to think about these things. And so we want to pray and we want to evangelize towards this end of a great revival in churches and a great awakening among the world. But folks, we need not and we must not let the immorality and horrors of the last days dampen our joy in Jesus. 
Because our hope is not dependent upon the positive outcome of our circumstances or our culture or even our country. Now, do we pray for those things? Yes. Do we want those things? Absolutely. But the invincible joy that we know as believers is because of the work of Christ in rescuing us from our sin and through faith giving us a new and secure relationship with God as our Father. And so let's be very careful to not slip into a melancholy pity party that our little heaven on earth is becoming a hell. Because we were never promised that earth would be heaven before Christ returns. And so if you're trying to make it that way, that's what you're longing for, it's what you're setting your hope for, you're going to be disappointed. Because it won't. We are sojourners and exiles in a foreign land. We are just a passing through. And our hope must be found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest of frames. Holy lean on Jesus' name. He's our solid rock. And so understand, in this fallen world, difficult times are given. All right? We don't want to sugarcoat it. Don't want to paint a false picture. It is what it is. It's difficult. There are difficult times. That's number one. Number two, understand difficult times exist because people are sinners. Understand difficult times exist because people are sinners. So look again with me at verse one. We're going to read through verse almost the end of verse five. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why, do, why are those days going to come? For people, so it's people's fault, people will be, and then we're going to get a list of 19 different sins or characteristics. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Kids, that's in the Bible ungrateful and it's funny but truthfully that like that's in the bible ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable slanderous without self-control brutal not loving good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god having the appearance of godliness but denying its powers its powers and so why do difficulties come because of this Because people are sinners. They are the opposite of good disciples. And so this is where we must pause and painfully ask the questions, is this me? Right here. Did it just describe me? You've got to ask yourself, did this just describe me? Like characteristically, we all fall into sin, but am I this, one of these, like who I am fairly characteristically because this this list almost reads like uh, an old jeff foxworthy deal right y'all remember the whole redneck thing you know it almost reads like that in a lot of ways like uh, jeff foxworthy stuff like you know um if chiggers are on your top list of hygiene concerns you might be a redneck right He's got things, and he's like, if you think that John Deere green, Ford blue, and primer gray are the three primary colors, you might be a redneck. 
And then my favorite is, if you have ever said, Honey, come move this transmission so I can take a bath. <laughs> you might be a redneck. Well, similarly, and, and serious now, if these descriptions in verses 2 through 5 are characteristic of your life, you might just be a false Christian. If you claim the name of Christ. Because sinners who bring in the difficult times that we face, just very practically, even in business, in marriage, in community, hello, Nolensville 411, and in uh, the local church, are people who are, verse 2 again, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless. Are you heartless towards those with whom you disagree? Politically, are you heartless towards them? Unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. When you try to get a, like if we, if we take these 19 things and we try to kind of get our arms around them, bring some type of summary to them. I think it's really helpful to look at the first thing that's listed there at the beginning of verse 2 and the last thing that's listed there at the end of verse 4. First thing in verse 2, lovers of self. Last thing in verse 4, not lovers of God. That's what all sin boils down to, really. That you love yourself, like in that moment at least, you love yourself more than you love God. As John Piper put it, sin is what we do when we are not satisfied in God. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied in God. And the fact that four of these 19 describers here are like compounded with the word love just highlights this, I think. It highlights that the fundamental thing that is wrong with these people, maybe us, is that our love is misdirected. Instead of first being lovers of God, they are lovers of self, of money, of pleasure. In modern times, we call the love of self narcissism. We call the love of money materialism. We call the love of pleasure hedonism. So narcissism, it, it's all wrapped up with the temptation to be something. That's narcissism. Materialism is all wrapped up with the temptation to have something. Hedonism is all wrapped up with the temptation to feel something. And these three temptations are the, the traps of, of 
pretty much all moral failures. Psychologically, we even know this. That's why you'd be hard-pressed to watch a commercial, listen to a commercial or advertisement that does not go after one of these three things. To have something, to feel something, or to be something. And this is the opposite of a good disciple. And since these things are the exact opposite of a good disciple, that means we need to fight them with the opposite of what these things are. So like double opposites are the neutralize. So humility is what we want to live in in contrast to narcissism. Integrity is what we want to live in in contrast to hedonism. And generosity is what we want to live in in contrast to materialism. But all of those things, if you just, you know, those are like prescriptions. All right, I'm going to be generous and I'm going to be, I'm going to have integrity and, and I'm, going to, I'm, going to be, I'm going to have humility and then all, everything's going to be gone. Those are going to be temporary band-aids unless they first flow out of a larger fundamental issue of love of God. And so it all comes back to that first, who do you love most? Yourself or God? And I don't want the cognitive answer only right now. Sunday school answer only right now. Allow the Holy Spirit to sift you for a minute. Who do your actions your choices, even your worries, show you that you love the most. I wanted to get painfully awkward. Who do your actions, your choices, and even your worries say, show, prove that you love the most. Think. Pray. Who? If you are totally self-focused, self-centered, self-absorbed, Jeff Foxworthy, you might just be a false Christian. And you need to wrestle with that. But friends, if the vertical love of God, all right, if you don't truly love God, don't truly have a relationship with Him, if that's not there, the, the horizontal love of others is going to disappear. And in a similar way, if a horizontal love of, of other humans, of mankind, of people around you, and of neighbor, great commandment, neighbor is not present. Within the vertical love of God's probably not present. They go hand in hand. And so just as we ask, do we love God above all things, we also have to ask the second part of the great commandment, do I love my neighbor as myself? Do I consider other people more important than myself? 
That's what the other half of these 19 things here in 2 Timothy 3 are all about. It's about how we treat other people, including those we disagree with. And this is what I started to get to a little bit earlier. One of the biggest problems in American culture today, particularly politically, is that we have either lost or ignore the art of debating ideas. And instead, we wrap personalities into ideas. And so we refuse to simply disagree with someone, to have a different opinion of this person as to what might be the best course of action forward. Instead, that other person and all their associates, and this is true on both sides of the aisle, therefore are evil. They are evil people, horrible people. And so then we live this very thing out. I mean, just think about the media. Just think about the political climate today. And listen to this. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. I think that just highlights, kids, how big of a deal this is ungrateful, unholy, and I think verse 3 nails it. Heartless. Are we heartless towards people we disagree with? Do we not try to get into their shoes and have empathy? Unappeasable. Doesn't matter what they say, I will not be appeased. Slanderous. Hello, no one's vote 411, CNN, Fox News. Slanderous. Without self-control, saying whatever, whenever, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Princess, this Listen, that may be true of the way the world on either side of the aisle fights amongst itself. That must not be true of how God's people treat one another. If this describes how we treat other people, including those with whom we disagree, at best we're then living in open rebellion and sin against God as the opposite of a good disciple... In violation of the great commandment, that's at best. At worst, if this is characteristic of how we engage, then our actions are just revealing our heart. We're not actually a believer. Verse 5, we have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. That is, it's, it's fake. It's pharisaical, clean on the outside, dirty on the inside. I mean, listen to Jesus. He goes off, Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, 
first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And so let this be a warning to us, all of us in here. Jesus is unbelievably merciful toward those whose lives are totally jacked up, messed up, falling apart at the seams, and they know it and they admit it and they want his help. Completely merciful towards people. But to those who play the hypocrite, there's nothing but rebuke. And so based upon your actions based upon my actions and the way we treat people, what kind of person are we? Are you a good disciple? Or are you the opposite of that? Are you godless? Or are you godly? And what kind of person are you becoming? Are you moving towards becoming more godly? Or less godly? Becoming more holy or less holy? Paul says it's these kind of people that bring in the difficulty of the world. And so if that's you, repent. Repent. Repent of choosing to be a lover of yourself more than a lover of God. And turn to Him. Turn to it is it is only the gospel that offers a radical solution to this problem. Because it's only the gospel that can recreate you, make you a new person, a new creation, give you a new heart, a heart of flesh with new desires and a new motivation in life, and, and turn us around from the inside out, from focus on self to not self. The total reorientation of mind and conduct, which makes us fundamentally God-centered instead of self-centered. And when God is first and self is last, we will love the world the way God wants us to. And we will seek to give and serve like Him. And we'll forgive because He forgave. And we'll serve because He served. And we'll love because He loved. And we'll care because He cared. And we will seek to understand because He understands us. And we'll seek to be incarnate in people's lives with empathy because He was incarnate in our lives. And He's our great high priest who's been tempted in every way. Like He's faced it, yet without sin. He came. He lived. He knows. He did walk a mile in our shoes. It's only the gospel that can change us from the inside out like this. So I invite you, 
One, if you've never trusted Jesus, to do so today, to allow him to forgive you of his sins, adopt you into, forgive you of your sins, adopt, adopt you into his family, credit you with his righteousness, and give you a new heart. And if you are a Christian and you've just swerved, you have You've then come back, repent. It's the same thing. It's turning from your sin. It's turning to Christ. It's asking for forgiveness. It's the same prescription. One's a capital R, repentance and belief. First time ever. The other's a lowercase. It's that ongoing. All of life is repentance, Martin Luther. But for those who don't live, you know, this way of, forgiving and serving and loving and caring and understanding and incarnating. For those who continue living this way, as described in chapter 3, look at what Paul says at the end of verse 5. Avoid such people. Avoid such people. Now, Paul doesn't mean to have no contact with people who aren't believers, right? To, elsewhere, Scripture says to do that, we'd have to go outside of the world, right? We, we live in this world. We, you can't do that. And Jesus, praise God, is a friend of sinners. It's good news for us. But what Paul is talking about here is not getting away from all non-believers. He's talking about avoid fake Christians. Paul is saying that, you know, have nothing to do with those who, who claim it, but don't live it. Like who don't even try. See, Christians sin, okay? We do. And we strive against that, but if we claim to have no sin, the truth is not in us. First John, right? And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. Christians sin. We fight against it, but we do. We fall into it. And so the mark of a Christian is not absence of sin. It's presence of repentance. You understand that? It's presence of repentance. And so the idea here is, are you, like, are you fighting? Are you striving? And so Paul's call is not to avoid those that you know, are fighting and, and they're, they're stumbling and they're falling. He's not saying avoid those. He's saying avoid those that claim that they have nothing to repent of. Those who don't agree with God about sin. Don't follow the leading of their elders. Who live with an attitude, oh, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And it's okay because God wants me to be happy and he told me this is okay. No, he did not. Unless it says it in his word. He's saying that, he's saying avoid them. And this may even mean to the point of breaking fellowship with them. Even to the point of church discipline and putting them out of the church. And treating them as a tax collector. And how do you treat a tax collector? With kindness and with love. And you evangelize them. They need the gospel. And so when Paul is saying, avoid them, I want to make sure we get this. He doesn't mean never talking to someone. Instead, he means don't hang out with them month after month as though they're not in trouble. And that's also just wise counsel for friendships. 
Like, have friendships with non-believers. Absolutely. With a gospel intentionality in them. But your closest friends, those you seek advice from, those that you allow to speak into your life, they should probably be people who are striving to live for Christ or you're going to get advice that's more befitting verses 2 through 4. And so folks, all these, character- all these characteristics, these are the kind of people that cause difficulty in the world. And so while we can't control them, we can make sure that we're not a part of them by checking our own hearts, checking our own motives, and repenting. And avoiding them in the way Paul intended, in the way Paul meant here. All right? So number one, understand difficult times are a given. Understand number two, difficult times exist because people are sinners. This long list of 19 that we need to check our hearts against. And then number three, understand difficult times will not go on forever. All right? So it's been very like wham, wham, wham. Like, ooh, this is a bit depressing. We're going to come up a little bit now. Understand difficult times will not go on forever. Look at verse 6. For among them, these people that he's been describing, these false teachers, these false converts, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never being able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Just in a nutshell, I've got stuff I want to say, but just in a nutshell, truth will find its way into the light. When there are difficult things in your life and you just Wish that people could know the truth. Truth will come out. Sometimes maybe not in this life. But it will come out. It will come to light. It will be plain to all. And so this, ver- this section here begins with a, a lot of details about a specific situation where... People were, evil men were preying on women who were burdened with sins, like they had come out of a sinful lifestyle perhaps, and they were burdened down with those, and so they were preying on these ladies, and they were taking advantage of them and leading them astray. All right? But the main point is that these, these people, they won't get away with this stuff forever. Like this stuff is going to go on. But they won't get away with it forever. It reminds me of the TV, uh, no, the, the movie that is on TV more than any other movie ever. It was trivia time. What movie is on TV more than any other movie? Hunt, no. That, that, one, well, we're going to go Christmas. Yes, that wins over, like, historically. But it, maybe, it's, maybe it's, I have United Communications. Across those channels, every other night, Shawshank Redemption is on. Right? You can always find Shawshank Redemption. At some point during the week, it's on TV. And if that movie, you've never seen the movie, but if you have, I will remind you, the evil warden 
like very ironically has a uh, thing that his wife stitched for him over his safe that says, judgment cometh. That's the idea here. Judgment cometh. I think that's the whole point that um, Paul's bringing in Janus and Jambres into this. Jewish folklore, Jewish oral tradition says that these are the two guys who were the um, sorcerers for Pharaoh. So when Moses threw down his staff and it became a snake, these are the two guys that threw down their staffs and they became snakes. And then Moses ate, Moses snakes ate their snake. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's Exodus 7. Read it tonight. But they were people who opposed, uh, like... Paul is talking about the last times, the last days, and yet he goes back to Exodus. And so I think the whole point is kind of like those who oppose God's truth have always been around. Those who stand in opposition to God have always been around, and they will always be around until the new heavens and the new Jerusalem. And so if you look back in history, you see false teachers. If we were going to look forward, we would see false teachers. If we look around today, we see false teachers, we see false disciples bringing in difficult times, but it won't go on forever. There is coming a day when Jesus cracks the skies, He returns, and He ends all of our difficulties. Globally, personally, He ends them. And judges all those who have opposed Him. And rewards all those who have endured. And so take hope in this. Even in the midst of a crazy and ever increasingly sinful world. At least in our eyes ever increasingly. Remember what Jesus said. In this world you will have many troubles. But have hope. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And through faith, you and I will as well. Difficult times will not go on forever. And even in the midst of the difficult times, God will preserve His church. He always has. He always will. And so let us not walk with a gloomy pessimism in the world. But let us also not walk with a blind optimism expecting this world to give us something that it's not intended to. But let us walk with biblical confidence. Understanding, yep, difficulty is a given. And yep, it exists because people are sinners. I want to make sure that I'm not living this way. I want to make sure that, that, that I am living as a good disciple, not the opposite of that. But also, yep, it won't go on forever. Christ will return and restore all that's been broken and all that's gone wrong. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning 
nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And so anticipate victory, but prepare for battle. Let's pray. Father, search our hearts. And give us confidence, Father, in you and even as we prayed earlier, your independence. Confidence in who you are. Not confidence in ourself. Confidence that you will be with us. I mean, Jesus, you promised I will be with you until the end of the age. So we will have your presence and we will have your provision and your sufficiency now and always. And someday we will have it visibly with you. And so, Father, search our hearts now as we think through all these 19 graphic descriptions that are the exact opposite of a good disciple. And Father, for those who walked into this room and their faith is weak, it's tattered. They're, they're hanging on by a thread, and they, but they are truly believers, Lord. Strengthen them. Let them not be fearful that their faith, even of a mustard seed, that it's somehow false. Strengthen them and help them to see. No, no, no. Give them that strength, Lord. But at the same time, those who walked into this room and they have a false faith. It is not true. It is not real. Then strip them of any confidence so that they can see the truth. And they might repent and believe and be adopted into your family for real. Truly. And we'll celebrate that. What a work you have done. You're good and you're kind. And for those who walked in here today and they, they, they have no faith, they, they don't even think they do, they know they don't. Father, would you save? Would you show them your love? That you so love them that you sent your only Son into this world to die on a cross to pay for their sins so that they may not perish but have everlasting life. And would you in these moments save them and may they receive your salvation And 
have your love wash over them in a way that's undescribable. And so we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.